Okay, the humor for this Sunday. A circus owner went broke, and he had to sell all the animals. He sold everything but one elephant. He wondered, how can I make a living with one elephant? Finally, he hit on an idea. He said, no one has ever made an elephant jump over a bale of hay. I'll offer odds of 10 to 1 that no one can do it. So he got a tent, a sign, and toured the country. People put up $50 for a chance to win $500 if they could make the elephant jump over the bale of hay. Years went by, and no one did. One day he went to Gladewater, Texas. A little 11-year-old boy with horn-rimmed glasses and a black satchel case came. He said, what's the deal? The owner said, I'll give you odds of 10 to 1 that you can't make this elephant jump. Have you got $50? The boy said he did. He walked behind the elephant and opened his attache case, took out a slingshot with a surgical rubber tubing, stretched it out and took a a two-inch galvanized nail, drew it back, and sailed it into the seat of the elephant. The elephant not only jumped over 10 bales of hay, but he knocked down the whole tent. Well, the, the man paid off and sat left saying, I've got to get a new act. No one has ever made an elephant shake his head up and down as if to say yes, and back and forth as if to say no. I'll offer odds of 10 to 1 that no one can do that. He began traveling with great success until he came again after three years to Gladewater, Texas. A little boy came in, now 14 years old, with horn-rimmed glasses and a black attaché case. He asked, what are the odds? The The owner told him, 10 to 1, and asked if he had $50. The boy replied, yes. Then he opened his case, walked in front of the elephant, pulled out the slingshot and said to the elephant, do you remember me? The elephant shook his head up and down. Do you want me to do it again? The elephant shook his head back and forth. I thought that was pretty cute. Kind of dumb, but kind of cute. Doesn't have a thing to do with what we're going to talk about today. In another generation, many years ago, I was a song leader for the Grace Bible Church here in Dallas, Texas. Now, in those days, all evangelical churches had uh, a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening service. You remember that very well. Well, the Sunday morning was not liturgical, but it was more formal than the evening. And the evening services were very casual. And so it was in the evening service, I would have what we called a hymn of the month, where for the same for the whole month on Sunday evening, we'd sing a hymn that would be new to most people. People enjoyed that. But what they enjoyed most was hymn request night, when they would just shout out a number in the hymn book, and we'd sing one or two stanzas of the hymn. They would sing the most lustily at those song services. Well, it so happened that there was one gentleman, every time we had a hymn request night, would call out the same number. I knew immediately what it was. It was Victory in Jesus. Now, I grew up in Minnesota in a Presbyterian church, which was very conservative. I mean, fundamental with a capital P-H. And, uh, 
<laughs> and we sang very seldom, we very seldom sang Victory in Jesus. Uh, we knew the song, but we didn't sing it very often. When we came to Texas, we found out that it was the national anthem of the Southern Baptist Convention. <laughs> Everybody sang Victory in Jesus, and they sang it often. Uh, <laughs> so we would sing Victory in Jesus that night. By the way, one song I never heard in Minnesota was I'll Fly Away. When I heard that one, I thought, what does that mean, I'll Fly Away? Well, I love the tune. It's very catchy, and it's got good words as well. But this was Victory in Jesus. Well, as I was preparing this lesson, I came down to verse 15 of chapter 2, which reads, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him or through it. <laughs> when I got to that point, I thought, that's the title of the message, Victory in Jesus. Now, you remember when we were in our first study, we said that there was the Colossian heresy, which prompted Paul to write the book of Colossians. And the Colossian heresy had two foundation stones. One was Greek philosophy, which taught that matter is evil. So your body should not be, well, we'll talk about that in a future lesson. Uh, your body should not be modified, uh, but, and, and you should not be caring for your body. The material world is, is not the real world. It goes back to Plato. The second foundation stone for this heresy was Judaism. Jews would dog Paul's steps and go behind him and tell Paul's converts they had to become Jews. They had to be circumcised. They must come under the law of Moses. They were Judaizers. And these are the two heads of the false doctrine. So that Paul warns in verse 8 of chapter 2, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. And that, of course, is looking at the Greek philosophy. And he points out, why do you do that? For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That is one huge, crucial verse. And I went into so much detail last Sunday in, dis in discussing that, I could tell that your eyes glazed over. I should not have gone into that much detail. A point that I was trying to make is in the Greek language, when you add the letter I to a word, you change it from what actually is to quality. And we'll use the word urnos, which means heaven, and compared with oronios, which means heavenly. Oronios is the real. You put an I in there and you change it to a quality like that. And we talked about a huge church controversy of the fourth century, which revolved around two words. The only difference in the long word was the letter I. Homoousia, which is the doctrine of Athanasius, Jesus is God. Or homoousia. Homoousia, I should say. Homoousia, which would be Jesus is like God. Thankfully, the church took the first. The viewpoint of Athanasius, Jesus is God. And then we looked at Romans chapter 1, where we look at creation. And you can see the divine power, the, the eternal power, I should say, behind creation. And then a second thing, you learn that behind this is a divinity, somebody that's like God. And it has the letter I in it, theotes, 
when you come to Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, you'll notice it says in verse 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of deity, capital D. That's correct. Because there's no I, Jesus is not like God. Jesus is deity. Jesus is God. Never forget that. You cannot be a Christian and deny that Jesus is God. Jehovah's Witnesses hate that. That's true. You can't be a Christian and deny that Jesus is God. So this is pointing out that Jesus is God. More than that, all the fullness of God. Now, he could have just said fullness, but he lays word upon word to drive home that every single aspect of God is in Christ. All the fullness of deity dwells. And it has the idea deep down dwelling, settles in. And it's present tense. All the fullness of God right now is dwelling in Christ bodily. Now that's crucial. That hits at this Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy said the last thing you want is a body, a resurrected body. Ah, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. In Christ, in bodily form. Right now dwells all the fullness of God. Ladies and gentlemen, that's crucial. Because the next verse says, you're made full. The same Greek stem. You're made complete. You're made full in Christ. Why in the brown-eyed world are you looking at philosophy or Judaism? All the fullness of God dwells in Christ, and you are made complete in him. Now, he's not saying you're God. I did not get to this last Sunday. We came to a conclusion before this. But in John 1.16, John says, Of his fullness have we all received grace for grace. We receive fullness from Christ. In fact, as we've said a hundred times, Ephesians and Colossians are sister epistles. And you find much the same thing if you go back a few pages in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3. And he says in verse 19, a passage that you all know, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. That doesn't mean all the fullness of God is in you. That would like, be like pour, pouring the ocean into a teacup. Though, I mean, he, the fullness of God has become your fullness. You are made complete in him. Don't go anywhere else. Now we move to where we are today. You'll notice in our outline, we find the positive truths of correct doctrine. And we're down to verse, um, verse, verse 10, or verse 11. Small address in your outline, believers were spiritually circumcised in Christ. The fact of that is given in verse 11. The truth, the whole doctrine is given in verses 11 and 12. But look at the fact in verse 11. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the circumcision of Christ. What in the world is that saying? He brings up the subject of circumcision. Why? Because the Judaizers were insisting on circumcision. He says, you don't need that. Now, why would they have circumcision 
in Judaism. When you look at your Bible, you'll find that circumcision is not mentioned until Genesis 17. Isn't that interesting? Humans have existed for centuries and centuries. And there's no mention of circumcision until Genesis 17. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, God is dealing with the world. And it's judgment, failure, failure, failure. So God turns to one man. In Genesis 12, he turns to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. And Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's chapter 12. Chapter 13, he says, Abraham, look to the east and north and west and south. I'm going to give all this land. I'm going to give it to you and your seed. In Genesis 15, he says, let's go into a contract. Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Abraham, you're going to have a child. You're going to have a child by means of Sarah. Uh, you're going to have a child by the name uh, by the means of Sarah, and I want to make a covenant, and the sign of that covenant is circumcision. And you're going to be circumcised. All in your household, including the slaves, are to be circumcised. And every person that's born in the family, every male, I should say, that's born in the family will be circumcised at age eight. Eight, eight days, at the age of eight days. Uh, I was talking to a member of this class who followed that principle, and he had his boy circumcised at age eight days. He said that scientists have shown that at age eight days, a boy has the highest concentration of vitamin K that he'll ever have. Now, those of you who are taking blood thinners know exactly what I'm talking about. Vitamin K is the vitamin that causes coagulation of the blood. And so he said, we circumcised him at age eight days. We had just one little drop of blood, that's all. Because God knew that that's when, when the blood is coagulating. But at age eight days to be circumcised. The sign of the covenant is given in, in chapter 15. Oh, isn't that interesting? Before he says that, before he talks about the covenant of circumcision, he says to Abraham, look at the stars. So shall your seed be. And then we read in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. Very interesting. Nothing about Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Nothing about the atonement. A person is justified by believing, by believing what God says. Now today it's very clear. We have the atonement and that's what God says. But all that Abraham did was believe that, I shouldn't say all, a fantastic promise. You're going to have as many children as the stars of the heaven. That's an exaggeration, of course. But you're going to have a whole multitude of children. And Abraham believed him. That's Genesis 15. Now the plot thickens. In Genesis 17, Abraham is 99 years of age. Sarah is 90. And God says to Abraham, one year from now, you and Sarah are going to have a son. And I want you to recognize that this is a miracle from God. And Abraham believed him. There was a doubt at first. But he believed God. 
And then he was circumcised. So that, I should say, Genesis 15 is before, I'm off. Genesis 15, Abraham believed God. Genesis 17 is the circumcision. I'm off on that, I'm sorry. Genesis 15, Abraham believed God. In Genesis 17, he says, now the sign of that covenant is circumcision. I'm sorry, I followed that up very badly. Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, was counted to him for righteousness. Genesis 17, he's circumcised. Very interesting. Paul uses this as an argument in Romans chapter 4. Was Abraham declared righteous when he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, Genesis 15, he was uncircumcised. He was declared righteous. In Genesis 17, he's circumcised. So Paul says, see, circumcision is not a necessity for, for justification. You could be made right with God without circumcision. So that the circumcision becomes a sign of the covenant. So you have basically two signs. One, you're a descendant of Abraham, and that's basically why Jews are circumcised today. But it also indicates justification, being made right with God by faith. So that circumcision has a twofold idea. You're declared to be a son of Abraham, and you're declared to be right with God. Something like baptism. Jews are circumcised, but it does not mean reality. They are not trusting in Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, he says, a Jew who does not please God has a circumcision considered to be uncircumcision. And a Gentile who pleases God has his uncircumcision declared to be circumcision. But here the Jews come along and say, in order to be right with God, you must be circumcised. And Paul says, no, that's not true. Look at what it says in verse 11. And in him, remember, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, the great Pauline doctrine. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, when you have that expression, made without hands, it's describing something that God does. For instance, a, a classic passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul says, if this body, this tent, be dismantled, we have a building from God, eternal in the heavens, made without hands. It's a divinely given, resurrected body. So here, there's a divinely given circumcision. It's a spiritual circumcision. You were circumcised without hands by God, spiritually, obviously, with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of, of, of the flesh. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word removal doesn't mean removal in the sense of taken away, uh, that you, you don't have a body anymore. That's not what he's saying. It has the idea of taking off clothes, stripping down, just taking off. The stripping off of the body of the flesh. What do you mean? Well, now we're going to get into something rather difficult. The word flesh is a hard word to comprehend because it has four entirely different meanings. Only the context can tell you which meaning it is. So you have the body of the flesh. What does he mean? 
Well, the first thing that flesh means is bodily substance. What I have too much of, bodily substance. In Luke, Luke 24, the resurrected Christ appears to the disciples. And they say, oh, we're seeing a ghost. Jesus says, no, a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see me now have. So flesh just looks at bodily substance. Totally different meaning for the second meaning. The second meaning is you can look at humanity. Humanity. You have that in 1 Peter chapter 1 around verse 24, 25 in that area, uh, where, where Peter is quoting from Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40, in the quotation, says, All flesh is as grass. Kol Bashar in the Hebrew. All flesh is as grass. Humanity, just like grass. Thirdly, another meaning, it may look at weakness, weakness. You find that in several passages. A classic one is when the Lord Jesus, the night before he was crucified, tells the disciples to stay awake and pray. And he goes on and prays and comes back when they're sound asleep. And he says, I know, I know. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is, what's the word? Weak. There's an emphasis on weakness. You have it again in 2 Corinthians 10.5. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, it says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That means they're not made of flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but they're divinely powerful. The contrast between weakness and power. The fourth meaning is the sin nature. Flesh refers to the sin nature. The clearest passage on that is Galatians 5, verses 16 and following. Walk by the Spirit, you'll by no means fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the works of the flesh are evident, which are these, and he has a catalog of sins. He says, this is just partial, they're more like that. The flesh is, is the sin nature. So you have four meanings. Bodily substance, humanity, weakness, sin nature. Now he's here talking about the body as an instrument used by the sin nature. This body is here yet, but it's stripped of its power as, in, uh, as, a, as an instrument for the sin nature. You're stripping off the body of flesh, this body used as an instrument for sin. Well, what do you mean? I don't understand what that's all talking about at all. Well, he goes on to explain, by the circumcision of Christ. Wait, 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 wait. Hold it, hold it, hold it. You're not saying that when Jesus was circumcised in eight days that we strip off the body of the flesh. No, 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 no. Every book that I read on this passage says it looks at the cross of Christ, the circumcision of the flesh. Now, let me get a little crass here. Way back in Genesis 17, when Abraham is circumcised, I hope I don't uh, offend some of you people by what I'm about to say. There is just a bit of the flesh of the part of the body that is used for procreation. And what he is saying to Abraham is, you may be depending on the flesh, your ability to procreate. Don't do that. The putting off of the flesh means you're not looking at human ability. So that at age 99 and Sarah 90, 
God is telling Abraham, it's not by human effort. It's by God. And that's the point here. We are spiritually circumcised by the death and resurrection of Christ so that we are no longer a slave of sin. That's the point of it. So we have the fact of our circumcision. We are spiritually circumcised in Christ by his death on the cross so that our body no longer needs to be used or must be used as an instrument for the sin nature. Now we come to the act in verse 12. Very quickly in verse 12, I must move on. He says in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So there you have it. You are buried with him in baptism. That clearly indicates he's talking about the death of Christ. He talks about the circumcision of Christ. He's talking about burial. He doesn't use the word death. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say dead and buried. He just says buried to indicate death. So that in baptism, you are buried with Christ. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. You mean that when I'm water baptized, I'm, I, 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 I've cut this all off? Does that mean in water baptism that I have been buried with him in baptism? No, not exactly. The word baptize, baptizo, is a very interesting word. Every Greek lexicon, I don't care who writes it, Roman Catholics, I don't care who writes it, Protestants, the first meaning of baptizo is to dip or immerse. I was quite impressed with the fact that William Barclay, the late William Barclay, who was a well-known churchman for the Church of England, frankly says this, he said three things about baptism. <clears throat> Number one, in the apostolic age, adult believers were baptized. At this point, you don't have, and he said this very clearly, at this point, you don't have infant baptism. Secondly, it's believers. It's baptism of adult believers. Then thirdly, he says, it's with total immersion. Now, that's amazing from the Church of England, because the Church of England in the United States is the Episcopalian Church, and they sprinkle. In fact, they barely get any water on their baby at all. They sprinkle. And yet it means to dip or immerse. Everybody recognizes that baptism means to dip or immerse. But there's a second meaning, and people miss this over and over and over again. And the second meaning is very prominent in the New Testament. So if you will, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 for an illustration of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'll start with the first couple of verses. Are you with me? 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into or unto Moses in the cloud or by the cloud and by the sea. That'd be better to translate it by. They're baptized into Moses by the cloud and by the sea. That cloud was not a cloud of water, vapor. It's a cloud of smoke and fire. And the sea, they didn't get a drop of rain on them or a drop of water on them. They passed through on dry land. How could they be baptized unto Moses? Well, the word baptize as a second meaning has 
to identify with, means to be identified with, to be joined to. Now, you remember the story very well. The children of Israel came to the Red Sea, and they're pinned against the Red Sea. The armies of Pharaoh were rapidly approaching. When you read the account in Exodus, you find that the cloud went from being in front of the Israelites to guide them and to lead them to be behind them. And it came between the children of Israel and the Egyptian army. So that the cloud joined the people, identified the people with Moses. So they were separated to Moses, joined with Moses by the cloud. And of course, it's very obvious what it means, by the sea. They passed through, the sea collapsed on the Egyptian army, and the Red Sea came between Egypt and the Israelites. They were joined to Moses. So here, when we trust in Jesus Christ, there's what we call spirit baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit were we all baptized into one body. We were joined to Christ. When we trust in Christ, spirit baptism takes place. Just like spiritually, there is a circumcision. Spiritually, there's a baptism meaning joined to. You are joined to Christ in that spirit baptism. Very interesting. Water baptism illustrates this. It illustrates it perfectly. When we baptize people, we put them under and we say, dead to, that you should no longer walk in the lust of the flesh, raised to walk in newness of life. So that it looks at your death, burial, and resurrection. Beautiful picture. So that in verse 12, he is saying, in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him. There's not just the burial, but when Christ was dead on the cross and buried, you are looked upon as being in him, in Christ. In Christ doesn't look just now. It looks at Christ when he's on the cross. And when he died and buried, you're looked upon as being in Christ when he's buried, and you're looked upon as being in Christ when he's raised from the dead. Now that has huge implications. I'm sorry to say that many, many Christians just do not, do not comprehend this. It means, in your mind's eye, put a cross right here. Put a cross right, right, right in front of you, right in front of you, in your mind's eye. On the right side, put all that you were as a lost person. On the left side, all that you are as a saved person. All that you were as a lost person was buried with Christ. Now, you as a saved person are resurrected to a whole new kind of life. Oh, I still have my sin nature. That's true but it has a whole new look in your position. You're now on this side of the cross in Christ. That has been a wonderful thought to me. When I've been tempted to sin, and sometimes, in fact, when I'm in the sin, I realize, too, saint, that's the old life. That's not who you are. You don't belong over here. Get on the other side of the cross. You're resurrected with Christ to walk in newness of life. That's a whole mental concept. Don't go back to the old life. Walk according to the new life. You're going to find that later on in the passage as well. So he says in verse 12, 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which also you're raised up with him through faith in the working of God. Now, the working of God, again, is supernatural working, and our yeah. It's God that works in you to do this, who raised him from the dead, meaning you are to walk in newness of life. Page two, I must hurry. Page two. Believers have been forgiven through Christ. Starting out, they were dead, verse 13a. And when you were dead, now he's changing the thought here. You were lost beforehand in Christ, in Adam, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He's looking at the sin nature reigned over you. You are dead in your transgressions. As you know, the word dead or death uh, means basically separation. You were separated from God. Well, let me take it back further. Death means separation. When a person dies, the body is still here, but the soul and spirit are gone. What's death? Separation of soul and spirit from the body. Spiritual death means separation from God. Separation from God. I'll come back to that in a minute. Eternal death means eternal separation from God. So that death means separation from God. What's life? Being unified with God. That's what Christ says in John 17, 3. He says to the Father in that last high priestly prayer, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life, to know God, to be with him. So that death, spiritual death, is you're separated from God by your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Secondly, they were made alive in verse 13b. When you were dead in your transgressions and the circumcision of the list, he made you alive, made you alive together with him. Now that's interesting. You've come into contact with Christ. That's life. That's life. You're made alive to, together with him. And, and he goes on to say, having forgiven us all our transgressions. I love that. That having forgiven goes back to the Greek word grace. The Greek word grace is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. Every once in a while, a person will name their daughter charis, beautiful name, or charissa. It means grace. Having forgiven is pure grace. We don't deserve it. It's a gift. Having forgiven us all our transgressions. Now go back to verse 13. When you're dead in your transgressions, same word. He forgave us all our missteps, all of our transgressions. Then the next word is, the next thing in verse 14 is, having canceled out the certificate of death, of, of debt, consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us, is taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Did you notice what it says? He canceled. It's the word blotted out. Uh, you may remember that Greek boys had, um, a, a, had tablets of wax, and they'd use a stylus and write with a stylus on that, on that tablet of wax, and when they wanted to use it again, they'd, they'd wipe it off. They'd just, cross, just scrape it off. Remember when you were children, <laughs> a long time ago, we had magic markers. Remember that? 
You'd write on it and then lift the sheet and it'd be gone. Well, that's what you have here. It just canceled out. It's gone. Having canceled out the certificate of debt. Very particular word. It's an IOU that you signed. If uh, I would borrow $1,000 from you, I'd have to sign that I owe you $1,000. It's not exactly the same word, but very similar that you have in Luke 16. The well-known parable of the unjust steward. Um, Remember the steward mishandled his his master's money, and so the master said, you're fired, close out the books. So he had just a brief time to get his books in order. And this scoundrel called in the master's debtors. He said, how much do you owe? Well, I owe owe 900 gallons of olive oil. He says, here's your bill. This is the word. Here's your bill, the IOU which you signed. Sit down quickly and write down 450 gallons. And he said, I like you. You just saved me 450 gallons of olive oil. He called in another man. How much do you owe, my master? A thousand bushels of wheat. That's right. Here's your bill. Same idea, an IOU. Sit down quickly and write, I owe my master 800 bushels of wheat. Oh, wonderful. You just saved me 200 bushels of wheat. So this IOU is a debt that we owe God. Now he says it consists in in decrees. Look at this. Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of death, consisting of degrees against us, which is hostile to us. Now, many people take this to be the law, the law of Moses. Now, that makes good sense, except for the fact that Paul is writing to Colossians, who are Gentiles, and the law was given to Jews. The law was not given to Gentiles. In fact, in Exodus chapter 24, in the first couple of verses, Moses, about verse, the first four verses, Moses tells the people what God told him. And the people say, all that God says we will do, signing the certificate. They agreed to the covenant of Moses, the law of Moses. But we didn't do that. So I think it's looking at Israel and Gentiles in two different lights. For the Jews, they were not under the law. They were delivered from the law. Remember when I said we used to have a hymn of the month? One of the hymns was, free from the law, O O blessed condition. Jesus has bled and there is remission. Bruised by the, excuse me, cursed by the law, bruised by the fall, Christ has redeemed us once for all. That's true. That's true for Jews, but we're free from the law also. But the closest thing we can have is the law written in our hearts according to Romans chapter 2. For he says, for when the Gentiles instinctively, by nature, do the things that are of the law, of the law, they obey the law, they show the law written in their hearts. But we didn't sign any certificate, but we're guilty. Any certificate of guilt that's against us has been removed. It's been, it's been canceled. It's been blotted out. In fact, he says, he has taken it out of the way. He's removed it. Perfect tense. He's removed it. 
having nailed it to the cross, it's gone, gone. Now, some people say having nailed it to the cross looks at the fact that Christ had his sin nailed above him, Jesus, the king of the Jews. That was death in the Roman Empire, Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, that leads us to victory. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, I'd like to dwell with this, explain this a bit more, but it indicates very, very clearly, we are on the winning side. He triumphed over the spiritual forces. What it means when it says he stripped them off, we'll talk more about that next Sunday. But he is victorious over all forces. In fact, if you would, go back to verse, verse 10. For in him dwells all the fullness of the deity dwelling in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. At the cross and in his resurrection, Christ was victorious over every spiritual force. Remember, philosophy taught you want the spiritual forces. Uh uh. You want the Lord Jesus Christ, who's over every spiritual force. And there's a victory in him. Which means, folks, we're on the winning side. As American citizens, I find that we are in a spirit of malaise, discouragement. Every Christian realizes. Our nation's going in the wrong direction. We're shunning God, cutting God out of everything. And it seems as though the forces in media, the forces in our universities, are doing everything they can to cut Christ out of our culture. And there could be a spirit of discouragement. I understand that. I feel the same. But at the same time, folks, we've got to remember that God's in control. And we are on the winning side. When you read the book of Revelation, the one theme that you find in the book is Jesus is going to win. That's the theme of Revelation. And we're on the winning side. So just trust in him. Make him the goal of your life. We'll talk more about that next Sunday. But I'm also concerned for those who are here this morning who've never made Christ their Savior, who are dead. They've never come to know Christ. They've never come to know God through Christ. This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. My concern is that they've never come to the place where they've trust in Christ and they know him in their lives. I pray that each person here may know Christ and come into life eternal and be resurrected to a whole new life in Christ. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of knowing you. We cannot begin to comprehend what that means. And we thank you that though circumstances on this earth at present seem to be so contrary, so malignant, so evil, that ultimately you 
you're going to conquer. And we can know that victory in Christ in our lives today, in the way that we walk with you. Work in our lives, Father. Work in our lives so that we may please you and put off the old man in our lives and live according to the new person. And I pray for those who are here who have never trusted Christ, who don't know him. They've gone through rituals. They perhaps have been baptized, joined a church, but they don't know Christ. And I pray, Father, that you work in their hearts so that they might know Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your attendance. I pray, God, that you'll have a good week.